Thank you. Thank you, Julian and Julian. That was fun. Um, would you pray with me as we come to God's Word? Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Spirit and your promise that where two or three are gathered in your name, uh, there you are in our midst. And so we pray that as you're here, you would minister to us and speak to us, address us in our need. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The church in Corinth was a hot mess. Perhaps you haven't read these letters for a while or ever before. I'm telling you, things were not pretty in the church in Corinth when Paul was writing these letters. This wasn't exactly what you'd call the ideal model church. Uh, let me remind you or share with you, if you haven't read these before, you could flick through the letters yourself and, and just look at the catalogue of disaster that this church seems to be. This church in Corinth is full of infighting and internal quarrels and factions. People in the church were suing each other because they couldn't settle disputes among themselves. And no one was willing to take the higher road and just let things go. They had rampant sexual immorality tolerated in their church of a kind that not even the society at the time accepted. The rest of the Corinthian city thought what they were doing was gross, and yet the church was celebrating that they were tolerating uh, gross sexual immorality. People at church were getting drunk when they were supposed to be doing communion. There were these shiny super leaders at Corinth who were incredibly gifted and talented. But that gifts, those gifts and talents feed their arrogance and their pride in a really bad way. And in fact, the whole church, we read, is full of very gifted people. But you know what's absent? Love. There's no love in this church. And so instead, they're using their great capacity, all these members of this church, they're using the great capacity God's given them to serve themselves instead of each other at everyone else's expense. There's more. Uh, doctrinally, some of them seem not to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. The current leaders seem to have forgotten the gospel of Jesus, weren't teaching it, and certainly weren't living by it. And if we were picking a possible partner church to work with to revitalize, and we sent a working party over to Corinth to see what the situation was over there, to see if it was viable, whether we'd be happy to send a team out from us to join them in the long term, I don't know if we want to work with a church like Corinth. When you take a look at what this church is like, you could maybe be excused for thinking that we'll just throw them in the too hard basket. And if you want to see a flourishing Christian witness in Corinth, you might be better off just waiting for this current church to die, which might not take long because they're so unhealthy, and after they're gone, you can move in and pick up the pieces. You know, start over again. But the Apostle Paul, as frustrated as he is by this situation this church has become, as burdened as he is by their weakness, as he planted this church, he cares too much about them to cut them loose. And so he writes these letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, to encourage this church, to help them pull their heads in and get in shape. And these letters, he's teaching them and praying for them and hoping that hoping desperately that they will repent and get their act together by the time that he gets to visit them by the grace of God. He doesn't want to see them falling apart. 
The beginnings and ends of these letters that we have in the New Testament, the first and last chapters, are often the places where you see not so much of uh, the issues of the church, but Paul's attitude and his relationships with this church, because that's where he inserts his personal remarks, his greetings and his goodbyes and his little personal notes. And it's in these bookends, uh, what you notice isn't theology, but relationship. And you notice that very clearly he loves this church, even though they exasperate him, even though they're in really a not very good place at all. They're like this rebellious teenage child of his that's gone off the rails. They've let themselves come under ungodly, harmful influences. And this church is even questioning Paul in his authority. Not that he's ever stopped caring about them, but they wonder whether he's actually the goods. And so what I think we learn from Paul in this last part of this letter is the apostle's attitude to spiritual weakness. Spiritual weakness. Sometimes uh, you'll be the one who's struggling to get your act together spiritually. And sometimes you'll be in relationship with somebody who's like that. And so I wonder whether there's things for us to learn either way, for ourselves or for the people around us. Let's pick up the thread from 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 11. It seems Paul can't believe this church can't tell the difference between their own leaders who are exploiting them and Paul, who's genuinely interested in their well-being. And so he says in verse 11, uh, chapter 12, verse 11, uh, Paul writes, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? He's just coming off the back of explaining why he never charged them a cent for all the work he did while he was amongst them. He didn't want to be a burden to them financially because he's not after their money, unlike their current crop of leaders. Now, Paul probably could have asked the Corinthian church to pay his expenses while he's pastoring them and working for them, but he chose to forego that right. And he says the mark of a true apostle isn't whether you're on the payroll You don't have to be a paid minister to be doing great ministry. What you need is love. And because he loves them, he goes to the trouble to write to them. It's love. He's not writing just to get stuff off his chest or to defend himself. It's not just a pride thing as if he's worried that people would judge Paul 
based on how unhealthy the churches he's planted are. No, he's deadly concerned about them for their sake. Look at verse 19. Paul continues, Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. You may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. Because he knows the kind of mess that they're in. He's heard the rumours, he's read the reports, and in the face of their stumbling and their sin and all the things that are wrong with this community, he doesn't distance himself, does he? Even when they're questioning the validity of his own leadership and criticising him, he doesn't terminate the relationship. The godly response when you notice sin is concern. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get defensive. He's grieved. And what grieves him is that they might be stuck in their sin and not doing anything about it. You're not in a good place when you notice sin in the church of God and you just tolerate it. Whether that's in your own life whether you see it playing out in someone else's life. Getting used to sin being there and normalizing sin is not okay. Yes, we live in a fallen world. And yes, sin stains so much of how we think and all the things that we do. And we live in a culture which, by and large, has forgotten who God is. And you want to be realistic more than naively optimistic. But you also want to be staying in that fight making progress against the dominion of sin in your life now that you're following Jesus. Don't be stuck in the same spot in your struggles with sin this time next year. At the end of 2020, you want to make sure you've moved in a positive direction, even if it's only one painful little step. And if you haven't progressed, then you've earned your rebuke. Listen to how Paul warns them. Chapter 13, verse 1. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I've already given you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Please don't presume on God's grace. Paul's checked in on them once. He's found them wanting. Twice. And this is now the third time he says he's going to come to see them. There were issues with them the first two times. Maybe he's given them the benefit of the doubt, but three strikes and you're out. This isn't just a coincidence or he's caught them in a sin on an off day. If they're consistently not dealing with their sin, if they haven't repented 
when he's warned them time and time again, if there's no indication of any positive change, Paul says he's going to call a spade a spade. Because he doesn't want them to let the familiarity with the grace of God get them complacent about the sin that's actually still in their life, in their church, in that brother or sister of yours. Don't give excuses for yourself or for them so that you don't deal with lingering sin. And what I like about how Paul deals with them here is that he wants them to take their sin seriously. He warns them, if by the time I get there you still haven't repented, I'm going to hold you to account. And I know there's time for softly, softly, and there'll come a time when enough's enough. And I think we need to hear that because we're so immersed in the good news of grace that some of us might forget that God did eventually send a flood in the time of Noah. That God eventually did exile his people. And his patience does have an end. That he has set a day for judgment. That we are accountable. And the risen Lord Jesus expects his church and his bride to be holy. If you're in Jesus, that is the trajectory. Look at verse 5. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5. Examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test? If you claim to have a part in Jesus, you've put your trust in him, and he's in your life, then he should be making you holy. And you should be looking for that fruit in your life, which is a pretty good indicator of health. Healthy things bear fruit. And that fruit is holiness. You, unless you don't actually have a living faith in Jesus, which could explain why nothing's happening. And fruitfulness, fruitfulness has very little to do with whether your external circumstances are going well or going badly. And everything to do with how you deal with it, regardless of what's happening in the ups and the downs. Now, talking about fruit. The Corinthian church itself is the fruit of Paul's ministry. They're his workmanship, which is subject to testing. And I think he's pretty confident that they really do have a genuine faith, even though they've been struggling lately. So you look at verse 6. Um, Paul says, I trust that you will discover we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we've stood the test, but that so you will do what is right even though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This church, Paul is fully aware, is a work in progress. And sure, there were discrepancies between their genuine faith which, saw, which Paul saw at the beginning when, he, when they first became Christians. There's a discrepancy between that faith and how this community is currently functioning when he was writing this, but that's why he writes verse 10. This is why I write these things while I'm absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, but the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. He wants them to have repented by the time that he comes to them. So he doesn't have to bring the smack down on the disobedient. He'd much, much rather find them having listened already, already conforming to the likeness of Jesus again in their life together. What I've noticed 
in our day is that people don't seem to accept rebuke very well. When someone challenges me about how I'm living my life and the decisions that I make, my gut reaction is to get defensive and assume that you're a hater because you disagree with me. That's us channeling our society's culture right there. I think healthy Christian culture is different. And it has to be a bit more robust. More like how a family treats each other, a loving family. And it's because we love each other in our family that we rebuke and warn and challenge. We don't do those things because we hate. We do those things because we love. Ideally, it's a safe enough place for us to be honest. And it's a safe enough place where we're concerned enough about each other that we're willing to call each other out. Call each other to account over sin, even if it might risk jeopardizing the relationship. You care so much about the other person that you're not just going to let their sin slide. And when we're on the receiving end of a rebuke, you recognize that someone's gone to so much care and trouble, they love us so much that they're willing to pull us up over our dumb and sinful choices. And when you sense that that's what someone else is trying to do for you, your response hopefully isn't to throw up a wall, but to listen, because you too are concerned about your own spiritual health. I think what Paul models for us here is an incredible humility, a practical willingness to put the other person's interests ahead of your own, and Jesus' kingdom above everything. Paul models for us a love that cares so much about their godliness that it grieves him when they stumble. And it moves him to address the issues because he longs to see them fully restored and strong in their faith. And he's incredibly optimistic about it as well. Considering how many serious issues he's addressed in these two letters, you'd think he'd be a bit less chipper in his conclusion. But look at his final words. Chapter 13, verse 11. This is how he finishes these letters. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That final verse is telling. I think he's got every confidence because he knows they've received the grace of Jesus. They know God's love and the spirit of God that's in them is the power for transformation that they need. He's not just telling them to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That never works. He's praying, isn't he, that the spirit of God will restore them, which is the proper grounds for hope. Spirit of God. If today, at the end of 2019, you're feeling weak in your faith, and if you feel there's all sorts of influences and sin in your life, but you call on Jesus and you know Jesus, can I encourage you not to give up the fight? We are all works in progress. And you may have felt this year you've taken a bit of a beating in your spiritual life and that you have a long way to go. But please don't give up and don't let that be an excuse. Don't get complacent and get into that holding pattern with sin, but keep moving 
forward. One painful little step at a time, if necessary. Keep moving forward in your obedience to Jesus and in your repentance. Wherever you're at, would you stop, turn around, and start heading in a better direction? And in your repentance, pray that the Spirit of God will bring you to full restoration. And that is in His power to do. Or perhaps today, the Spirit of God has been prompting you to think about someone else, a Christian brother or sister you know who's stuck in error and sin and who really does need something, someone to come alongside to warn them and to love them. May God give you the compassion and the wisdom and the opportunity and the grace to say what needs to be said in a way that will be heard and appoint them back to Jesus. And can I encourage us as a whole church community, as we think about our relationship with Eastwood Baptist Church moving forward, who we're partnering with as we work towards revitalization. I know some of you are on the roster to visit and some of you might have already come to see what it's like and met some people. It might be awfully tempting for you, having visited, to critique where you think Eastwood services need improving or where where things are different and not to your liking. And you might even be right in your critique. Who knows? And as we journey from here, we might uncover some of the root causes of decline at Eastwood as we dig a bit deeper. We might even find some really troubling things, some troubling conflicts, some ungodly patterns, some negative behaviours. But what's your attitude going to be to these brothers and sisters of ours down the road? who find themselves in a system of decline and have been there for the last maybe one or two decades. What do we do with that? Are we going to point and laugh and gossip? Are we going to throw them in the too hard basket and walk away? Or are you going to move towards Eastwood Baptist in love and pray earnestly for spirit-empowered transformation? Be honest, by all means. We don't pull punches. We shine light into wherever there might be darkness. But would you be careful to do that with great humility and a practical willingness to put the interests of the people at Eastwood Baptists ahead of your own? This isn't a cold corporate takeover of one organisation by another, as if all that matters is strategic benefit and assets and opportunity. Our core obligation is to love and to build up Eastwood Baptists, not to tear them down? Would you make Paul's attitude and prayer for the church in Corinth your attitude and your prayer for Eastwood? Chapter 13, verse 9. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. Amen.